Welcome to our podcast here at Hope United Church. To access the live stream of our services, along with other resources and information, please visit www.hopeunited.org.uk. John 17 verse 1 to 5, the high priestly prayer, part 3, uh, John 17, 1 to 5, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to the heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. You have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And I say really weighty verses. And we'll conclude up to verse 5 this morning and then next week we'll get into the next part of the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for his disciples um, and then in turn prays for all believers. Um, Never uh, have I been uh, made more aware of my fleshy prayers really than I have in the last two or three weeks. Uh, I'm sure many of you have said the same and, and, and many of you have came to me and said the same that you became more aware than ever in this recent weeks of uh, how feeble our prayers can actually be. And here in the first part of we see of John 17, we see Christ, as Thomas Manton says, presenting his merits before the tribunal of God. I would say the two greatest, this is for me, I, I, these would be my favourites, but I'm sure others uh, would say otherwise. The two probably greatest teachings in writing out with the word on John 17 would be Thomas Manton, a Puritan. Um, another one is Anthony Burgess. They are extensive work in uh, their studies of John 17. So if you ever want to get that, that would be something. If you want to kind of follow this and delve in deeper yourself, I would strongly uh, suggest those two types of teachings. But even they in themselves... Uh, think that they, they, they hardly scrape the surface of these things uh, and the, the, the level and the depth of, of Christ and this prayer. And to think at the end of his life, he was uh, in the flesh, Christ presents his work to the Father, not to see if he passed, it's not an exam to see if he passed, but to share all that he has accomplished. Also Christ praying and interceding for the disciples, which comes next, and then us. Uh, and it lets us see and learn what we should also be doing, praying and lifting one another up. And I think that's something that we've been challenged, I think, again in the last few weeks. Uh, John obviously records this prayer, and of course with the help and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but also, this is not silent prayer. This is not a silent prayer. Jesus is praying out loud because he wants the disciples to hear it and learn, but also he wants us uh, to hear it and learn. Uh, again, for both our instruction and guidance that would bring us both comfort and encouragement. And the disciples, uh, much comfort and encouragement who were confused and, and this final night, a lot had already happened uh, Judas had left and they're confused. Jesus is leaving them. They don't have the, they can't quite comprehend, understand, and they're not yet uh, been baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
Um, and yes, silent prayers are, are what we all do a lot, I'm sure. Uh, but there is something about open prayers that can both instruct and, and lift uh, both yourself and the spirit of the, the hearer. I remember reading A. Hodge on, A. Hodge is the son of Charles Hodge, who, the great Princeton theologian. And A. Hodge, there's a great book on the Westminster Confession of Faith. A. Hodge writes, and it's brilliant because it's a whole commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it's quite autobiographical as well. It's, it's a tremendous book, but I remember reading it, uh, a part of it anyway, and uh, he was talking about how his father would pray for him and pray for the whole family, uh, and he would deliberately bring his kids into his office and the kids would sit at Charles Hodge's knees and, and he would pray over them, audible, loud prayers. And A. Hodge wrote this in, in this book. He says, he prayed for us all at family prayers and singly and with such soul-felt tenderness taught us to pray at his knees that however bad we were, our hearts all melted at his touch. End quote. And you just get a picture of this uh, Charles Hodge praying over his kids and mention them by name. You've heard me talk, I've talked to many guys about this before, that how often we, we don't pray for our kids or we maybe pray privately for our kids, but no publicly where they'll hear us lifting their name up to the Lord. And as A. Hodge writes there, it's so um, elevated his spirit towards God that that his father, who, had, who he knew had such a wonderful relationship with the father, would, would lift his name up um, to God himself. And how much more then, and hearing Christ lift us up in prayer, how much more as we get into this over the next few weeks, Jesus' prayers are as good as his word. Anthony Burgess says, I mentioned it last week, the father could not reject the prayers of Christ any more then he could reject his blood. Meaning Jesus' prayers were enough. They were a done deal. Now we know that that doesn't mean that we tag on Jesus' name to the end of every prayer. No, like the charismatics and you sometimes get taught just everything in Jesus' name and he'll just do it. You have not because what? You ask not so you think you want a 42-inch tail. Ah, you just go to pray for it. All this naming and claim it stuff that you see uh, in, the, in the, the modern church today and it's, it's not nothing new under the sun, of course. Uh, and Jesus' prayers here are not a prayer of hope. It's a prayer of declaration. His hour had come, his appointed time to die was at hand. Unlike us, we know not our time. Jesus knew exactly the time. I don't know, maybe we go through seasons like this. I, I seem to be in a season now that I'm just hearing people dying all the time. I don't know if it's you get older, you know more people, but I just seem to be in a season. I just seem to hear people, it's like every other day, so-and-so died, so-and-so's passed away, so-and-so's passed away. It makes me so, so aware of it and so aware of dying. I was in London yesterday. I'm not going to get into detail, right? So I was in London yesterday. Uh, and I was not there, just briefly, I, I was not there to protest. I'm not, I don't believe in protesting. I was there to stand in truth, but I was there to... I was there in a sense to evangelise as well and I get talking to some people and, you know, these people campaigning for stuff and I admire what they're trying to stand on. Most of them not believers, although they were. Yeah, I'm sure many there. Yeah. But still they think that come the end of, you know, if they can, the tyranny of the government and when they get out of this or hopefully they get out of this, wherever it's going, yeah, 
And I was talking to this woman, um, uh, and she, she was, I, I don't know if she was a doctor or whatever she'd done, and you know, she was campaigning and really, really very proactive uh, and educating families, especially kids, about the vaccine that we spoke about. And she asked me a question. She's not a believer. She says, do you think we're in the end times revelation? And, and I says, there's one thing I do know. I says, if you're not right with Jesus, you better try and get right now. <laughs> I says, that's, that, uh, that's one thing I do know. You know I, I strongly suggest that whatever time we're in, uh, it seems nearer now than ever, but I don't know. But I says, one thing I do know is, uh, this isn't going to get you heaven. This is not going to get you heaven and you need Jesus. You know, and she was very welcome, very receiving of that, and as were other people who I spoke to. Because we don't know the time. Unlike Jesus, Jesus knows the time. We don't know exactly the time. We have no clue. We think we know, but we don't know. You know, you might know somebody's in their deathbed, you know, they've got minutes or whatever, or they're dying and dying a painful death, but, but none of us know the time or the hour. But Jesus knew the exact time. The beginning of his suffering was, as it were, the beginning of... The end of the elect suffering. Even though Jesus knows his hour, his time to truly suffer beyond any of our con any of our comprehension. There is no fight. There was no fight for Jesus to try and preserve his life. Of course, in the garden he is that moment, if it was at all possible to have another way, but nonetheless, thy will be done. With all his power and all his majesty. He simply surrendered. How much do we fight? As I study this, I think about the, the, uh, Jesus' surrender here in this prayer and, and, and as we come to his passion. But yet we, as humans, fight. We fight everything, don't we? We fight back when we feel lost. We fight back when we feel pain. We fight when we feel rejected. We fight to be right. We fight when we're misunderstood. All these moments here, flesh seems to fight harder than any other. The, the flesh seems to fight and fight. And as we refuse to accept what's happening, or we refuse to accept what we feel, spending hours and sometimes days, even weeks, holding on to things that cause us pain and hardship. Even prayer for things not to be so. Yet we see the total opposite here. In Christ, we see a, a surrender. Christ sees not as temporal suffering that we do. We can get so caught up, can't we, in temporal suffering. We become obsessed and we almost forget everything as, we, as the pain kind of envelopes us. When I first get, came to church, I was astounded. I was, I get sober through AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and then went and studied and get help and counsel and psychology and all the stuff that goes, all the self-help stuff that goes with it. Um, and then I get saved four years later by the grace of God, come to church. And one of the things that I was astounded about, and I've said it many times, one of the things that I was astounded about in church, when I was in after a period of time, maybe a month or two, because... I don't know, but you, see when you first go to church, you think everybody's a saint, and you? you think, every, well, they are saints if they're saved, but 
but you think they love like saints as well. They don't, no. And I thought everybody was sorted. And, and then you start to talk to people, the human condition, you realise, my goodness, there are, there are a lot of people who cannot handle any pain whatsoever. Just an inability to handle pain in any way, shape or form, as if belie like believers, is, we should be able to handle that stuff. We should be able to cope with that stuff. And people were having meltdowns left, right and centre. And you realise that, well, obviously the work of the word wasn't working in the life because the word was hardly getting preached because you can't shabba dabba do that stuff away. <laughs> and I just thought, well, I'm feeling a bit, well, oh, just bring in the big guns and they'll pray over you and you'll be okay. And it was never so. And so many were suffering just these, they would go from one drama to the next without ever being able to cope or understand pain. And Christ sees not his temporal suffering, but his end victory. Surely that is the ultimate when you see the maturity in believers. Uh, you see it with Apostle Paul when you read his whole life when he had such maturity, when he was suffering hardship. He considered it all joy. Uh, how much do we wallow in unacceptance? And why? Why do we wallow in that? Because we're looking to preserve our lives. And we know we're looking to preserve our lives, our status, our reputation, our character. But it says Jesus became man of what? No reputation. He's not fighting for that stuff, but yet we see people fighting for this, fighting to be understood, fighting to be known, fighting to be heard, fighting to be seen. And I'm not against that in a sense. No, I've seen much of that yesterday. And although the news says there were a couple of hundred there, there were, there were over a million people there. You know, but they, they don't, don't want to tell you that. You know, don't want to say that. Why? That's the question. You want to ask that? Why don't they want to tell you that? It's another question in itself, isn't it? How much do we think of our own works that we can achieve freedom? We can achieve peace or even eternity. Think of the Roman Catholic faith that is all works-based. What about Muslims? They've got, I think, 613 laws. <laughs> try, try keeping them. 613 laws. Jesus came and says the law can be written in this and then Muhammad comes along 600 years later and adds another six, 611. The Jewish faith, all the laws, the commandments, they keep in order to think how they can inherit eternal life. Yet people are exhausted by constantly looking for meaning or life and things with their own works. Matthew 11, 28, 30, Jesus tells the people who were heavy laden with burdens and works, he says this, you'll know the scripture, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. J.C. Ryle says, go not, he seems to say, to man for relief. And how many of us do that, that we go to man for relief? Rail continues, don't wait for help to arise from any other quarter. Just as you are, come to me. Again, Rail says, here is the key to true happiness. Here is the secret to having a light heart. All is in the acceptance and of the offer of Christ. Self-preservation, self-help, self-sufficiency. It's all too hard work. Don't you think? It's all just hard work trying to constantly defend yourself, trying to prove that you're right, 
It's not just exhausting to do it, it's exhausting to listen to. You're like, oh, you're still trying to explain yourself. And there's a huge difference between carrying our own cross and denying ourselves and our selfish ambition and, and carrying all our own means of attaining peace and freedom. Think about it. How much time, say, how much time even in the last week, just even in the last week, through different situations, maybe your work, your life, do we spend trying to no change or trying to change uh, and not allow what's happening to us or around us, uh, change how people think about us, not being able to deal with pain, labouring in our own strength and becoming weary. And it's exhausting, labouring your own strength. Don't you think? It's exhausting. For each so is the as the Greek, it's to carry all our own burdens due to self-effort. Carrying external burdens, it really means, and I think it, when, you, when you open up here, it, it kind of says it even more, to carry external burdens in an internal way. <laughs> Don't we just do that? that? All these burdens and all these things that happen in our life that we, we take them to heart and try and carry them. In an, internal, in, a, in an internal way, what's happening round about us? Is that not what we do? We carry all these external burdens and things and try to carry them internally in an attempt to make things good and right? No wonder our soul is so weary. No wonder our soul is so weary at times. No wonder we're tired. No wonder we're burnt out. You always read this in church. We were talking about driving home yesterday. But you always see it with these in, in the modern church, these pastors, through burnout. They're always getting burnt out, aren't they? You'll always get burnt out when you're no trusting in God and his word. They're always, because it's always about their next idea and their next program and this is going to get people committed and this is going to get numbers through the church and this is going to make us into a mega church and this is going to, and it's all in their own efforts. No wonder our soul is so weary at times, becoming exhausted and trying to gain life and peace and freedom in our own strength. Trying to be righteous in our own strength. It's all trying to find peace and freedom. Without Christ, is it not? Works, works, works. Yet Jesus said his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Because all has been given to him. That yoke is easy. Those efforts need not be in our own works, but in the surrender to who he is. He takes all those things and bears them. The verse prior to come to me who labours, it says in verse 27, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. We just heard Jesus teach the disciples that in chapter 16. Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman when she is in labour has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. Us men don't know that, but you as women know that, eh? That... A human being 
been born into this world. Therefore, you now have sorrow. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. The disciples are not there yet, as we know. They, they suffer without truly grasping the promise of eternal life. It's no setting their hearts. It's no setting their minds. Jesus, however, doesn't have that doubt. Never in my walk of life, I have to say this, uh, have I seen so many believers afraid of dying. Never in my walk of life have I seen so many believers afraid of dying. I've never in my walk of life, I'll say this, never in my walk of life, here be controversial again, never in my walk of life have I seen believers being so terrified of a virus. We have survival rate of 99.9 odd percent. Never. Survival rate of 99.9% plus. Terrified. Frightened of dying. It's as if they don't seem to comprehend eternity. Of course, I'm not saying that we shouldn't take medication or see doctors, however. That's a far, far cry from the fear that we're seeing today. It's a completely different fear that we're seeing today. It's understandable with the disciples, pre-Holy Spirit. But after that, after the Holy Spirit comes upon them, not one of them tried to preserve their life. Not one of them tried to preserve their life. In fact, Paul, had, he had to be restrained in, in Acts, as we remember, as you look through his life, that he would have happily died. And it wasn't for the Holy Spirit guiding them away from certain death. I read in a Scottish Reformed denomination, this is just no long ago, maybe about six months ago. This is what it says. I'm not going, I'll paraphrase what it says. It talked about denying herself and her selfish ambition. Love your neighbour. Deny your ambition and don't go to church now. What? Honestly, I nearly choked in my penguin. No. They actually say that in, their, in a document. That we have to deny our selfish ambition as believers and don't go to church. You, we know you want to go to church. We know you desire to go to church, but we want you to deny that selfishness that you have, that desire to be in church in order to love your neighbour. Really? Really? That's what they think? As if, it's, as if we're going to church with selfish ambition? <laughs> I'm going to church today because I'm dead selfish. I can't even comprehend why you would even think that. How far is that for them, the instruction in John 16? And worse, how far is that for the instruction then the prayer in John 17? Again, I'm not saying we should love carelessly. But if a virus with a 0 0.0000001% is making you stay safe, I'm more concerned about etern your eternity than I'm more about your health. <laughs> Seriously, I'm more, I'm more concerned. If, that, if, that's, if that's making you be safe, it's maybe an eternity problem we need to speak about and no health problem. It gets me in so much trouble, doesn't it? As I said last week, Jesus is the one who has been given power over all flesh. Yet only whom God chooses can truly benefit from it. 
benefit from it. How wonderful that we have a God then who does more than renew our minds but actually takes our flesh as it were and puts it on the sun who then takes it to the cross. How then do we find it so easy to look to it for comfort and know him who has took her shame as I've studied this scripture in the last weeks? My desire and I think I'm sure you are, you just, I want to please the Lord. I truly want to please the Lord. In the modern church, it's not about pleasing the Lord, it's about pleasing yourself. In fact, it's about the Lord helping you please you, even. You can get your head around that. Think for a moment, Jesus is seated at the Father, the right hand of the Father, interceding, ready to intercede during your struggles. As he is the victory over all our flesh. Think of these moments when you're temp facing temptation, trials. And Jesus, picture it. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Interceding and ready to intercede for your trials, your troubles, your struggles, your pains, your burdens heavy laden. And we do that. Think of that. Are we? The word's there. You have all been there, I'm sure you have. I'm not in your head, I'm in mine. <laughs> We're there, the word's there. You know you should be in it. You should be praying. And yet your flesh is torn as you seek something else. As you turn. And here Jesus seated at the Father's, waiting, willing is almost to, to seek him. And yet in turn, we turn our back and go and seek flesh or man. 1 John 2, 1 to 6 says, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And then anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself in the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And many, many people, universalism ends up attaching itself to this. The whole world does not mean universal, unlimited atonement. Is unlimited power. But it is limited to them who God chooses. The power is no limited, it's just limited to who. Yet John continues, 1 John 2, 3 and 6. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we may know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Isn't that a challenge? And this is not about perfection. We, we never will. It's about obedience. And we will never remain obedient 
if we turn, as it were, our backs to the altar, that altar where Christ intercedes for us in the heavenlies. My dear brother Billy messaged me earlier on in the week uh, a wonderful quote which, which I came across again in my studies. It was with D.L. Moody and it says this, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. Doesn't it just? Doesn't it just? We're, we're, we're crawling on the effort we make to crawl away from God. It's astounding, isn't it? It's obviously from Romans 12. One, present yourselves a living sacrifice. Holy, pleasing to the Lord. This is your reasonable act of worship. Therefore, do not, Romans 12, to conform to the pattern of this world, but be thee transformed by the renewing of your mind. Else will be like what Paul explained in Ephesians 4. Remember, we've done the study. I'll just read it briefly or quickly. This I say, therefore, and testify to the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. Because of the blindness of the heart, who've been what? Past feeling have given themselves over to that, that past feeling. It's, you're no longer convicted, eh? It's amazing the effort we can go to and no be convicted. <laughs> but yet when we're walking in the presence of God and in that communion, we're convicted. It's like you're, in, you're convicted all the time. They've been past feeling of giving themselves over to lewdness to the work of uncleanness with greediness. Just this insatiable desire starts. But you have not so learnt Christ that indeed you have heard him. That you have been taught by him as the truth of Jesus Christ that you are. That be put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to his deceitful lust. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man which created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Having gone past feeling. Apalageto. It means to cease from feeling pain. <laughs> to cease from feeling pain. To cease from feeling guilt. Isn't the modern church about making you feel no guilty? Isn't it, isn't it obsessed with that? Making you feel no guilty? It's making you feel better. It's making you feel special, girl. You're special. It's making you feel. It's making you feel amazing. We say this a lot, didn't we? You're not as bad as what you think you are. You're much worse. <laughs> it's a much better starting point. You're, you're actually not as bad as what you think you are. You're much, much worse. And you know what a congregation? Do you know where a congregation will go? Amen, brother. That's you're preaching now. You're talking about me here. You're much worse. Therefore, grace is so much greater. If you're not that bad, grace becomes. It's always an attack on grace, isn't it? It's always an attack on the message of the gospel of grace. To cease from feeling guilt, or especially to cease from being convicted by truth. To no longer be convicted by truth. I don't think there's anything worse than we're no longer convicted by truth. I've seen this over the years that maybe people have been in church and have left and I've met them. See, at the beginning, 
there is a lot of shame, they feel embarrassment. Well, usually they act sorted for a wee while, they're the prodigal, they're partying for a wee while. And when people leave church, they're always partying. They're always partying. I've seen so many pastors and they end up challenged with this stuff. If they act as godly as that, then they were in church, they wouldn't have left. But it seems to be when they leave, they seem to, oh, the scriptures are flown. They're like, they're, they're, it's just that partying time for a wee while and then it just sinks. And all of a sudden they're in that place and you think they no longer can even hear truth. They're so far from it. Their hearts have become darkened, been alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in them. Obviously no saved in the first place. And our fresh flesh will crawl off the altar. Why does your flesh crawl off the altar? Because it's trying not to feel convicted anymore. That's what it's trying to do. You're trying not to feel convicted anymore. You're trying to know. You're trying to put it out of sight, out of mind. You're trying to ignore the. You're trying to ignore it. You're trying to justify why you're fighting it. Yeah, when we think of Christ's prayer and like that. When we think he's sacrifice and where he's placed, maybe think of that. And this, I've been convicted as I've been studying this. His thoughts come in and his things come in. I'm thinking of Christ. So even yesterday, and I, I don't want to make this about me. I'm walking around London and I'm ever reminded about my relationship with Christ, which is, which could easily be drowned out amongst a million one other things. Even when you're trying to do even a, a thingy truth. And it's truly heartbreaking, isn't it, to turn and attempt to blot out his sacrifice. That's what it's then. Ignoring Christ and crawling off the, 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 the altar is to attempt, feebly attempt to blot out his sacrifice. And subsequently, he's prayers for us. Yeah, he is. Of course, as we know, the next part of Ephesians goes on to what? What does it talk about? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Grieve means to, uh, in Greek it means lepeto, or it, you pronounce it lepeto, it means to affect with sadness. Oh. Does that know? Does that not pain you? That when we are no obedient, we, are f we in turn affect the Lord with sadness, to cause sorrow, to make uneasy. When we sin and fall short, or we sin, or we, we crawl off the altar, as it were, as we look to self and our own ways and our own means as we refuse to surrender, It makes, it makes Christ who sat next to the Father very uneasy and uncomfortable. Isn't that, a, isn't that a picture? It makes him uncomfortable. I'm glad I'm reminded of that. I, I, that's what makes you want to do the right thing, does it not? It makes, it makes him feel uncomfortable. What you're saying there is making him feel uncomfortable. Well, you're seeking comfort. That's what we do when we seek him. Or not him, sorry. 
and temptation and trials. Does that not grieve you? It certainly grieves me. But what an advocate we have. I was speaking to a brother, another brother the other day and he said he was praying on the way home from work. I'm sure many of you have these moments. You're in work all day, especially you're running about. I'm not going to say who you're running about. You're running about different people, okay? But it's, it works, works often hard, doesn't it? Oh, that, honestly, that's the most identification you've all had today. <laughs> he's all like, oh, brother, brother, you've no, can I have a word at the end of the service about her? <laughs> it's just works difficult. You're in a world and you're in run about your people who are in the dark, people who are this, people who are... And especially in this current climate in the last year and a half, people buying into all sorts of... Non, not just buying into it, religiously telling you that you're mental for no. You know what I mean? Cannot believe it. Bragging, bragging about rolling their sleeve up. Not even tell, but not just doing it, bragging about it. And he was saying he was driving home, he's talking about all sorts of work and he's in work and it was full on all day. As he starts driving home, he was saying he started to reflect on his day. He's saying that the moment he started praying, as he's driving home, as he just, that cellar moment. He, he says he was in, I'll, I'll paraphrase what he says, he says it's almost, he was embarrassed with the patheticness if you like, he, what he was getting caught up in. You ever think that? I cannot believe what I allowed myself to get caught up in there as if it was important for a believer. But when you're in that stuff, you're caught up. And I think as we begin to mature, as mature as believers, you, you almost sense that in it as you start to lose your peace at that moment, didn't you? It's, you don't need to wait to the end of the day. You're almost, you're, you're sensing, I'm uncomfortable here, but sometimes your flesh takes over and you're in worldly talk and arguments and debates and you, you look back and as he's driving home, he says he realised how trivial the drama was. And he says, all I could do was repent and humble myself because I was taking life and everything around about me too seriously and not taking him seriously enough. Is that not what it's like? And as he did, he said, how his whole perspective changed during his drive home. Isn't that the greatest thing? <laughs> Isn't that the greatest thing? You know, we're no perfect perspective changes, doesn't it? I'm an extrovert, so I'm... Extroverts will know this, you know. Introverts, you'll think it, but you might not say it. So you just get away with it a wee bit more. I think extroverts, they tend to just, oh, you just want to catch your words, don't you? You just go, oh, you, why did you say that? Why did you just not let it be? Why did you, why did you need to open your mouth? But then again, then when you start doing this, sorry, I'm getting here, then when you start doing this, you're not even born about what you said, you're born about what they think about what you said. And then that's you into a whole other ball game, oh, I'm, no, I'm looking bad. I was member was at an AA meeting and asked this couple to come and speak. And they were in the car park. They never knew I could see them, right? They were, they were coming to speak, a husband and wife coming to speak at an AA meeting. And they were coming in to speak and they must have had a car argument. I'm sure you've never had one of them. They had a car fight in the way of the meeting, right? 
and it was a full-scale Barney, right? I think it was a full-scale Barney. It was a full-scale Barney by the time they stopped, I know that. And then they seen me at the corner of their eye. They seen me at the corner of their eye. They seen me at the corner of their eye, and honestly, they walked, they, they walked in as if butter wouldn't melt in their mouth. Honestly, they walked in like, oh, hi. No, I was like, oh, and you're like, oh, my goodness. I judged them completely, of course, for the rest of the night, but... We don't have a... We don't have a high priest who doesn't sympathise with these struggles and battles. Look, my brother was talking to me about when he was in the triviality of life. And... But yet he was without sin. We have a mediator who intercedes for us and speaks in our behalf. Don't you think that should make us want to please him? As I was studying this and writing this during the week, I'm thinking, oh, I just had to stop and pray. Oh, how I want to please you. Oh, how I want to please you. That was my prayer. It was nothing more than that. Oh, how I want to please you. You ever stuck up for someone? I used to have to date and work a lot less so now. You ever had to stick up for people? I've had to date for years. See, we workers in the building said, maybe had workers out and they'd just been up to, oh, you're like, oh, I need to stick up for them. And you stick up for them because you know if you don't, it's the right thing to do. You stick up for them. But however I've loved, <laughs> they never made it so hard for me. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, oh, you've just made it so hard for you. And maybe a client's having a meltdown at them doing something, you know what I mean? Maybe guys up drinking on roofs and all. I used to have that, you know, like, oh, just crazy stuff in the past or no finishing a job right or no doing something right. And you're like, it's right to defend them in a sense. Oh, you're like, you're just making it so hard for me. And the same with your kids, isn't it? You just go, I, I want to protect you, defend you. Your, your behaviour's making it so hard for me. I'm sure Jesus isn't like, your behaviour's making it so hard for me, but it's, it's what it makes me think of. How much harder am I making it, him for it? I'm making it hard for him to intercede for me because of my sin and my behaviour and my rebellion that we make it so, we could make it so much easier for him, could we? <laughs> but yet, even that pain and night trials are all in the hands of God. That's whose hands your sin's in, though. Which is amazing, isn't it? Your flesh is even in his hands. That's what it says in the scripture. All his hands and feet, to be precise. And truly no one can take you out of his grasp when you have been chosen by the Father. Hence, we can totally grieve and disappoint at the same time. Eh? Thomas Martin says this, when we're in Satan's hands, the devil is in Christ's. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't that not just a beautiful thing? When we're in the grasp of temptation and Satan's grasp and grip. See, for us believers, those elect, the devil is still in Christ's. All things what? Working together for good. And then again we cry, oh, how I want to please you now, Lord. Oh, how I want to please you for that. Jesus in this open prayer with the apostles is teaching them that he is there. What? Well, we know the Holy Spirit's our wonderful counsellor, but we have this wonderful mediator who never leaves us nor forsakes us. Jesus, 
denied himself, he served us because he loves us. He said, didn't he? I go back to the Father. That's where he is. Next to the Father, having done all. He said he would in making a way for us that we would also have relationship with the Father. Without Jesus, without saving faith, we will create a God, create a many gods even. I passed by 15 Hare Krishnas yesterday. I think there were 15. They could have been 22. But they were running about 15 Hare Krishnas. They've got about three, three and a half thousand gods. It's all right, pick just one every day. You're fed up with them. 3,000 gods they've got. At least. Without Jesus, without saving faith, we'll create what? We'll create a God. Jesus says in the scripture, he says there in the verses that Eternal life is given that we would know one true God. So many religions have multiple gods. Even gods they don't know. Remember Paul in the Areopagus in Acts 17? The, the Stoics and the Epicureans were there. They just wanted to hear this new different God that Paul had. They weren't interested in God. They already, the fact Paul seen a placard, remember it says, I just seen a placard there to the unknown God. A God they don't know. Before any of us get saved, there was a, you maybe go, oh, I believe in God. I know, but a God you don't know. And because he's a God you don't know, you'll change him. And he'll become another God tomorrow and another God the next day and another God. Always changing. It was, God's unchanging. But we changed him to suit us. Why did the Stoics and the Epicureans know no God? Because they knew not Christ. Alcoholics Anonymous teaches a God that you don't understand and you've heard me saying it loads of times. It's a God that you decide based on what you want. How can that be God? Do you know why they do that? Like many other of these programs and different things because, because you know not Jesus. The minute that you know Jesus, you can no longer pray to a God of your own understanding. It's impossible. The minute you're saved, you can no longer pray to the God of your own understanding. When I get saved, and many, many people were, I used to be in a group in Belsill, an AA group in Belsill, and then slowly but surely everybody started coming were, were saved. You, know, no long, you, know, you can no longer stay in that environment where you're in a God of your own understanding environment. Jesus prays that the, the gift of eternal life has been given to him to know that there is only one true God. Without that, we will keep manufacturing a God at best. Does that know what we've done before we were saved? That we kept on manufacturing a God? Or even ignoring it existed. Today in the church, we have multiple God. Church embracing universalism. We passed a church yesterday, did we know? All accepting, no, whatever, it's this universal God. I was in... Berlin, it was a strong Lutheran church, but at the time, Lutheran's miles away now. But Martin Luther preached in it in Berlin, and they were converting into a polytheist church, all gods coming together. So they were going to worship with Jews, Hindus, Sikhs, Roman Catholics. They were all just going to come under one roof. That's what that's what the church is going to do. We're all 
different gods all coming to meet together. It's universalism. It's all loving, isn't it? It's all accepting. The church is even embracing it themselves. Why? Because they don't have saving faith. They have a sense of God, but they do not know him. For they don't have eternal life through the Son. They bring this into close. It's no different. It's no different for the world. We're creating our own gods. No different. Only through Jesus will we know the one true God. And when you hear and see not the God of the Bible spoken by people you know, they know not the Son. It's as simple as that. Therefore, when Jesus plays, glorify me, he knows that in itself. The Father will be glorified. He and the Father are one, and if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So to close this whole open section, before we move on to Jesus' prayer for his disciples, yet even though Jesus and God are one, he took on the form of man, of a servant. He became of what? No reputation. He still needed God to seal his works. To grant, that's completion. Because Christ in the flesh could not be fully glorified. Not in the flesh. Manton says this as he comes to the end of this section. All the thick clouds and mist of his deity was removed. As the disciples observe him praying. Of course, that's not at this point, but it is its final acceptance. Before this, the work was done only, as we know, the cross is to come. Hence, he prays, may I be glorified to the same degree that I was in the beginning. I'm coming back to you. This is what he's saying. I'm coming back as I always was. But here's the thing, no empty handed. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't the gospel wonderful? I'm coming back to you, but no empty handed. Because I'm coming back with a sea of witnesses. I'm coming back with all who you've chosen. Not at the one time, of course. But isn't that a wonderful thing that is not that Jesus just goes back to the Father? All who are elect go back to the Father. We go back to the origin in which God had ordained for us right at the beginning in his mind. I'm coming back to you as I always was. But I'm coming back with the mission complete. And we all you choose coming with me. That's his prayer. That's his opening, that's his opening gambit. <laughs> Just so waiting, as I say, as I'm Still, even now, it's beyond beyond anything. But as we study it and as we read it, I'm sure, like me, your desire is, as, oh, Lord, that would please you. Oh, Lord, that I would honour you. Oh, Lord, that I would, I would no cause you sadness or unrest. But as you lift your prayers for me, that they would be They would be easy for you. <laughs> they would be prayers that would be glorifying prayers. As I was concluding this and studying this part, I was thinking of the apostles who would pray and the martyrs. If you ever read the Foxes Book of Martyrs, a great book. 
but the men coming to the end of their life and astounding. I was in Cambridge yesterday or the day before and passing such history with faithful men there. Many of them martyred and in, written in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. And then I get thinking about when Jesus was lifting those men's names in prayer. <laughs> when he was lifting Apostle Paul's name in prayer. <laughs> when he was lifting John's name in prayer. Peter's name in prayer. <sighs> How it must have pleased him to lift the faithful men's prayers to the Father, eh? And I, I don't want to go off piste here, but I just think, I think if I look at my life and where I've been, thank for the grace of God. I think I would like Jesus' prayers to be much easier for me <laughs> than what they are, to be honest with you. Uh, and that, that grieves you, doesn't it? It grieves me. And it grieves me every day as we live our life. You think when we're going through life and he's interceding, you think, goodness but yet he'll keep praying as Robert Murray McShane says if I could hear the prayers if I could hear the prayers of Christ in the next room I could face what was that a, a thousand enemies but yet distance makes no difference he's praying for me what a wonderful thing amen amen let's stand just says there, just to put a caveat, of course Jesus praying for us is no hard no matter what's going on in our life, you understand that? But we'd love all to make our life more honouring for the prayers, would be no? Thank you for joining us for our podcast here at Hope United Church. If you'd like to get in touch or for any more information, please visit www.hopeunited.org.uk